Well, good morning. Uh, it's not too late to say Happy New Year, and uh, at some point it will be too late, I guess, but not today. Uh, it's going to be, 2018 is going to be a really a benchmark year in the life of Trinity, and I'm really honored to be a part of it with you. And this morning we're going to start a brand new series. I think it's going to be an important one for us. Uh, it's called this is us. We've called it that for reasons that I think will become clear in a few moments. I'm going to let uh, you live in the mystery of that. I'm not going to over-explain it quite yet. But, uh, but in this series, This Is Us, we're going to be studying uh, what might be the latest book of the Bible, the last book to be written. Now, I mean, the Bible's published in a certain order, and the last book in the Bible's Revelation. That's not what we're talking about this morning, but the, the, when they were written, the order they were written in is, is different from the order they're, they're, they appear in the Bible. And we're not 100% sure, you know, they don't come with dates, but uh, a lot of Bible students think that uh, this book we're going to be talking about this morning is the, the last book that was written. So you could say it's, it's the, the final word. And like, uh, you know, when a person passes away, sometimes their final words carry a certain level of uh, significance. I think this book's going to really uh, speak to where we're at this morning. And, uh, and a lot of us will recognize parts of this book, even if you're not that familiar with the whole of it. There's a lot of familiar verses here. And in fact, I was talking to Pastor Edgar uh, the other week, and we both agreed this is one of our favorite books in the Bible. And so... Anytime you find yourself in agreement with Pastor Edgar, you know you're, in, you're on the right track. And so if you don't trust me, you can trust him. And uh, the book we're talking about, the book we're going to be spending our time in is 1 John. 1 John, you can turn to it if you'd like. It's a letter written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends. And as I said, what might be uh, the last book of the Bible to be written. And this, this letter, 1 John, written by John, that's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. And, and John, he's one of Jesus' closest friends in his earthly life. He's called, in fact, the apostle whom Jesus loved, even though you know, Jesus loved all the apostles. But uh, if you ask the apostles who was the favorite, most of them would probably say John. You know, maybe Peter would say, no, no, it was really me. But everybody else would know it was John. John's the favorite. But uh, so, so John and Jesus, they had a really unique relationship, a really special fellowship together. And uh, after Jesus died, John uh, relocated to Ephesus. That's a city that's mentioned quite a bit in the Bible. And, uh, and the church in Ephesus had a really wild history. Uh, I mean, it started with a bang. Some really crazy stuff went down there. And uh, Paul came into town. You can read about this in the book of Acts. Paul came, and, and right away, amazing stuff was happening. Uh, people are being healed, and evil spirits are being cast out of people, all these kinds of things. And, you know, you don't keep that kind of stuff a secret. I mean, everybody in town knows what's going on. In fact, the book of Acts tells us everyone living in Ephesus was seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So see, they didn't really understand exactly what was happening, but they knew somehow this Jesus person was behind it all. And um, there was an event you can read about in Acts where they, they burned a bunch of scrolls that were used in pagan worship. So this, this big public demonstration, people are pledging their allegiance to Jesus, they're throwing off false gods, and nobody in Ephesus can escape the fact that this growing church is causing all kinds of disturbance in town. And in fact, some local businessmen took notice. Uh, there's a group of silversmiths. They make little uh, silver statues. That was one of their big money makers. They made these silver statues 
statues that were used in idol worship, and uh, that's kind of like their kids' college fund, making these statues, right? And, and they noticed their bottom line's taking a real hit now that this fellow Paul came into town talking about Jesus this and Jesus that. And, and so they decide, hey, they, they need to do something about it, and they stir up trouble, and, and uh, the result is the whole town is in a big riot, uh, there's chaos, there's confusion, they're trying to crush this church once and for all. They really just want everything to return to normal, right? We can relate to that. We experience a little chaos, a little confusion. We just sometimes just want things to return to normal. That's where they found themselves. So I share all these uh, things with you because I want you to understand something about this church in Ephesus. Uh, this is the, the church that first read this letter that we're going to read this morning, and and these people who made up the church, they had a big decision to make. It wasn't like here, where you could decide to go to church or not, and it doesn't really seem like anybody cares, right? For these people to continue to gather as a church, it was a big sacrifice. They were, they were drawing a line in the sand. Uh, they were drawing divisions between themselves and their family, or between themselves and their community. They had to make a real commitment to follow Jesus, and it was going to cost them something. Maybe, maybe their job, maybe their family. Everybody in town understood that following Jesus would put you on the wrong side of some very powerful people in town. So it was not an easy choice to make. And so this is the church that John is writing to in 1 John, except it's not. Things changed. This, this church that started with such a bang, with such strong commitments to follow Jesus no matter the cost, over time things changed. Paul even told them it would change, in fact. He saw the change coming. In the very next chapter of Acts, right after we read about this, this riot, Paul is, is saying farewell to these Ephesian church leaders. He knows he's never going to see them again, and he gives them a warning. We read this passage last month during the series, More Blessed. We read it again last Sunday, Acts chapter 20. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to what Paul says to these church leaders. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard, he says. Now, before we go on, here's a, a side note. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about this morning, but it's really worth pointing out in this passage here. You know, uh, a lot of times you hear people say things like, uh, well, you know, the early church, they, they knew that Jesus was a great teacher, but they didn't think he was God. That, that kind of myth developed over time later. You know, maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've even uh, thought that, you know. But, but I want you to notice right here, Paul, he's an eyewitness to Jesus. He's telling these church leaders that the church is redeemed not with Jesus' blood, but notice what it says here. It says, with God's own blood. God and Jesus interchangeable here. So Paul understood and he taught these early church leaders that Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh. So, like I said, not much to do with what we're talking about this morning. That part's free, but uh, uh, hopefully that's an encouragement to you. Right. But what I do want you to notice in this passage, I want you to notice Paul's warning to them. I mean, even after all the excitement of starting this church, all uh, they had to draw that line in the sand and decide to give up on their family ties, to give up on community ties in order to follow Jesus. But now Paul's telling them that savage wolves are going to come in and begin to tear the church apart from the inside? There's going to be problems, and it sounds like pretty big, savage problems, Right? 
And if this was the last word we had on this church in Ephesus, uh, we'd really be left wondering what was going on. I mean, this is such a cliffhanger kind of a moment. We'd, we'd want to know, how did it end? Were they able to fight off the savage wolves? What happened? But this is not the last word we hear about this church. There's one more mention I want us to look at, and it helps us understand the church that John is really writing to. And at the very, very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you don't have to turn there either, but there's one more place this church is mentioned, and I want us to to look at. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, in this book, John, again, the same guy who wrote 1 John, which we will get to eventually, uh, same guy wrote Revelation, and in that book, he records Jesus' own words to the church. And, And look at how Jesus assesses this church. He says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. So he says they've persevered. They've fought off some wolves. They've been through some things together and they're still here. That's good. But Jesus tells them that that, that fire, that line in the sand passion is gone. They've lost their first love, Jesus says. And it's this church, this lukewarm church that John is writing to, really, in First John. He's writing to the, the second or even third generation of Christians, not that first generation that was so passionate and resolute. He's writing to a church that's been through some things and that's grown a little bit complacent. Some of them had maybe been around when Paul rolled into Ephesus and had done all that amazing stuff, but those folks are pretty old now. Some of them have maybe even been taught by John, one of Jesus' closest friends. But uh, some of them weren't even sure what they were there for. They were just kind of exploring Christianity. And he's writing to that church to remind them who they really are and what's most essential. So as John writes to this church, it's a church that's a bit confused. And they're confused about some pretty big stuff. They're confused about their own purpose, about their own identity, about some real fundamentals of the faith. And so it's a church that's at a crucial time in their life. And so I think this letter is helpful for us to read because in it, John lays out some things that are not only true for that church in Ephesus, but are true for the church in Walla Walla. He lays out things in a really meaningful way. He gets right down to the core of what's most important about our purpose about our identity, and that's helpful for any church, right? And perhaps particularly helpful for this church. That's why we're going to spend time in this book over the next few weeks. It tells us who we are as a church, what's most important for us to focus on. And I can't think of a better way to start 2018 than reminding ourselves about what's most important and then leaning into that. And so John, he starts his letter in a really unusual way. He starts with a bang. There's not a greeting of any kind. There's no, hello, how are you? How was that gallbladder surgery? Have you lost weight? None of those kinds of things. It's it's really unusual for a written letter. You look at other letters in the New Testament, there's greetings, but there's not one here. And he just gets right to it. So let's, let's get to it. Look with me at the beginning of this letter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 
So that's how John starts off. I mean, it kind of feels like you, you walked in a movie a few minutes late and you're sort of left wondering what's going on. I mean, who's that guy? Who's he talking to? What's he talking about? Uh, it's a very unusual way to start a letter. In fact, uh, it's been described as a uh, grammatical tangle. That sounds like fun, right? Uh, it's, it's complicated. But, but one thing that helps us understand what's happening here is he seems to be talking about himself a bit. Did you notice that? He notice how often he uses the word we here five times in just uh, these two verses. And so who is we exactly? Anytime you see something repeated in the Bible, you want to pay attention to it. That's a clue that, that something's being emphasized, and it's probably important. And so right here at the beginning, there's a we. And in order for us to really figure out who this we is, there's another clue in, in verse 2. John says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. So there's a we, and now there's a you. And it helps us understand this grammatical tangle just a bit. We know that John is writing, and he's writing to the church. So, so that helps us know that you is the church. He's proclaiming to you about eternal life. So knowing that you means the church body helps us really understand who we is in this passage. And notice what the passage says about we. It says, we have heard that which was from the beginning. We have seen him with our own eyes. We've touched him with our own hands. See, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus was from the beginning, just like Paul told the leaders of the Ephesian church. Jesus was with God, and Jesus is God. And yet John and the other apostles that we, they've seen him and touched him. This person, Jesus, who was with the Father and then was with them, John and these other leaders are now proclaiming to you, to the church. So this we is a pretty important group. Uh, it's leaders of the church. It's eyewitnesses to Jesus, people like John, people like Paul, these people who had the job of telling the world about Jesus, about this man who was the God-man and who was raised from the dead. And so this letter starts with a bang, and part of that bang is simply the fact that it comes from a person who has authority who knows what he's talking about. And since John has all this authority, then, then what he chooses to talk about takes on a level of importance. I mean, here's this church that's confused, that's in this, this crucial moment, and they need to hear from a we. They need to hear from people who have authority and who have wisdom. And John chooses to tell them about the most important thing, Jesus. Part of the role of church leaders is to help you know and focus on Christ. That's exactly what John does here. But he also tells them about another group. There's another group that's referenced right in the beginning of this book. There's this we, church leaders, and there's this you, church body. But look at verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. See, when you put you and we together, you get us. This is us. The leaders of the church and the body all together. Us. John's not writing to create some division between himself and the church. Oh, I'm a super important person because of my relationship with Jesus. I'm special compared to you. No, he writes so that they can all be together. So there can be an us. We could all have fellowship. We are all together. Us is together. And especially here at Trinity, as we go through this time of transition, we want to be mindful of these kinds of foundational pieces. We're all in this together. There's no you and me or you and them. There's just us. Us is the church, and the church is us. 
So now you know why we've called this series, This Is Us. That's what we're going to be exploring. Us, the church, what makes us distinctive, what, what matters the most to us, how we should be living. All these sorts of things are going to be our focus over the next few weeks. And, and throughout this letter, as we study it, we're going to see John spends a lot of time describing what is us, what makes us us. And right here at the abrupt beginning of this letter, he tells us one thing that makes us us, and it's a big part of what makes us us. It's this idea of fellowship. You know, fellowship, it's one of these kind of churchy words that gets tossed around a lot. In fact, I saw a Facebook post the other day, uh, some friends having dinner, right? I mean, just people out to dinner with friends, nothing unusual about that. They put a picture on Facebook. But these people are Christians, right? So the caption says, what a sweet time of fellowship. I mean, it's just dinner, right? But because it's Christians, you add Christians, we call it fellowship, right? This word kind of gets tossed around. So it's one of, these, one of these Christianese words. And it's so, so common of a word that a lot of people even toss around the, the Greek word that's translated fellowship. Some of you probably even know the word koinonia, right? Uh, I, I even went to a coffee shop one time that was called koinonia. I mean, it's just coffee, but... Whatever, this word kind of gets watered down to make it basically meaningless. But, but fellowship, koinonia, is a really big deal. It's a big concept. And this, this fellowship, this idea of sharing mutual interests, sharing concerns, of close communion, that's one of the things that makes us, us. It's more than just dinner with friends, because that's something you can do with anybody. I mean, Christian, atheist, everybody's got to eat, Right? So what is it about fellowship that's so important that John would open his letter with that? What makes fellowship a critical marker of us? This word, uh, fellowship or koinonia, if you prefer, it has some real nuanced meaning, and there's really three aspects of it I want to highlight briefly. The first one is partnership. Partnership just means you and me together, working together. And that's a really important idea for us. For, for us, this faith family, especially in transition, none of us knows what the future holds, right? But one thing I do know is that we want to get there together. And that means partnering together. That's part of fellowship. Each of us being willing to stick it out, to stick together, to do what God wants us to do. And throughout this series, we're going to be reminding ourselves of some of these important things that we at Trinity should be focused on, the vision that God has given us, our purpose in this valley. See, uh, think about this, okay? Despite all that this church in Ephesus had been through, John and Jesus had not given up on this church, I mean, John's writing to them, keep at it. Uh, Jesus, uh, we read in Revelation, he has his own words of encouragement for this church. They haven't given up on this church. Well, that's the same attitude we want. You know, God's not throwing in the towel here at Trinity saying, well, they had a pretty good run. No, there's too much at stake in our valley for us to sit back and let somebody else do it. We've got to, uh, to be a partner, uh, partnering with uh, each other and partnering with God. I mean, that's part of what us in fellowship means. You know, uh, Pastor Brad shared last week, when we talk about partnering, we say, you, uh, your name here. That's, that's all of us working together. Uh, but, but fellowship is, is more than just that partnership. It's more than just being united by a common cause. It also means participation. 
participation. That's another part of fellowship. And this is where uh, partnership gets real. This is where each of us has a part to play. I, I said before, I don't know what the future holds for Trinity, but one thing I do know is that whatever that future is, we're not going to get there without participation, without each of us playing our part. You know, God, he does not bring people to church, bring people to a faith family, unless he has a role for them to play. There's no understudies. There's no sidelines in God's church. We all have some role to play. It's true of me. It's true of you. And, and maybe you're filling that role. You're doing things here that God wants you to do. That's wonderful. Keep it up. But maybe you're a person who just kind of comes on Sundays, gets a little teaching, and goes home. One of the things I'm going to challenge you with as we work our way through this book is that pattern. I'm going to challenge you because uh, I think John would argue that attendance without participation, that's not really fellowship. Participation is key. We're going to talk more about that over the next few weeks. So partnership is part of what fellowship means. Participation is part of what fellowship means. There's one more part that's really critical. I told you this word has a lot of nuance. The third part is intimacy. Intimacy, that's a key idea to fellowship. It, it's, it's knowing and it's being known. And, and social scientists who study these kind of things, they talk about intimacy in terms of physical distance. It's kind of a helpful metaphor. You know, there's different ways of interacting with people when you're at a, a distance like you and I are or, or when you're close up. And depending on how close you are, there's different ways of, of interacting. You know, so if you're like four feet apart, that's like handshake distance. I mean, handshake distance for people with normal size arms, right? Four feet apart. Uh, and at this distance, at, at handshake distance, you're close enough to see the other person, uh, wrinkles and all, right? Uh, I mean, we can't see each other's wrinkles from here, but, uh, but if you're close enough, your handshake distance, you could see wrinkles, and, and you could even see uh, metaphorical wrinkles. In other words, you know, you know that this other person who's that close to you has some flaws, but you're willing to be close enough to them anyway, right? Now, that's not as intimate as you can be with other people, of course. The, the next kind of level in is zero to 18 inches, and that's like face-to-face. And what's interesting, at this distance, uh, you can't see the other person's wrinkles. They're, they're blurred out because you're, you're so close to them. In other words, you, you are close enough to them to see past their flaws, Right? You know each other well enough and you still choose to be that intimately connected to each other. Right? Well, here at church, we tend to stick to handshake distance. Right? I mean, there's, there's some huggers out there or some kind of non-committal side huggers and, and stuff like that. But in general, we're just handshakes fine. Thank you. Thank you. But guess what? True fellowship, true koinonia, the kind that makes us us, it's more intimate than a handshake. It's the, the blurry, I love you enough to see past your flaws kind of intimacy. That's what makes us, us. It's partnership, it's participation, but it's also intimacy, loving each other, even though we're all flawed. I want you to notice, too, there's another element of fellowship in this passage, another really crucial piece. The fellowship that John is talking about, it goes beyond each of us participating, partnering, and being intimate with each other. John says, verse 3, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. But look at the second part of that verse. 
And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, the fellowship is not just horizontal. It's not just each of us partnering, participating in shared mission and and, and being intimate friends together. The true fellowship, true koinonia that makes us us is centered around God and around his son Jesus Christ. It's a vertical fellowship as well. This is the kind of fellowship that Jesus himself prayed about for you and me. You may not know, but Jesus prayed for you in the Bible. At the end of his ministry, shortly before he was arrested and killed, he prayed. And in that prayer, John chapter 17, Jesus prays for you. And he says this. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. He's talking about the message of the apostles, that we, that we read about here in 1 John. And this is what he prays for us. He says, I pray that all of them may be one. That's intimate fellowship. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. And then he prays this. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So see, he prays for our horizontal fellowship, our participation and intimacy, but he also prays for that vertical fellowship, that we would be finding our true sense of us in him, in our relationship with God, not in our individual relationships with God, but in our communal relationship with God, with us and God. Jesus prays for this, and John really just echoes what Jesus is saying as he starts his letter. It's as if he's saying, hey, I want you to have that kind of intimacy with God and with each other. Uh, I know what it's like because I walked with it. I talked with it. I saw it with my own eyes. That's what he says. We, we sang at uh, Christmas time, we sang, word of the Father now in flesh appearing. And that's kind of what fellowship looks like. Jesus and God so intimately connected that they're one. And then Jesus turns around and prays that same kind of fellowship for you and for me, for us, that we would be one in the same way, one with him and one with each other. That's what he's saying right at the beginning of this letter. So what makes us, us, us is the church united in intimate fellowship, participating, partnering together in God's ministry to the world. Us is fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. So how do we get this kind of fellowship? How do we experience the kind of intimacy, the kind of partnership, the kind of participation with God and with each other? Well, I want to share four ways that we can get this, four things that each and every one of us should do in order to become us. And the first one is really foundational for all the rest. The first response we all need to consider is that we need to get centered. And by that I mean we need to be centered on our relationship with Jesus. That's foundational to everything else. That's why John starts his letter talking about Jesus. He's the the source, the foundation of everything that comes after. So what does it mean for us to get centered? It means we've got to come to terms with our own individual relationship with Jesus. And maybe you're there, maybe you've had a personal relationship with Jesus for a long time. Great. Maybe you don't even know what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But part of being us, getting centered, is that we recognize we have an ongoing need for Jesus. We need what Jesus has to offer us in a relationship. Look at verse 8. John tells it very bluntly. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. You know, just like we talked about with intimacy, we can see each other's flaws. You see mine and I see yours. Well, if you're not honest with yourself about your own flaws, about your sin, you're not fooling other people. 
You're only fooling yourself. So our first response has to be getting centered, being honest with ourselves, and then being willing to surrender ourselves to God. Verse 5 says, This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. With God there's only light. And John is sharing this truth about God, and he tells us, uh, you and I, that we can have that same light in us. Apart from God, we walk in darkness, but with God, there's no darkness at all. Getting centered means we surrender ourselves to God, asking him to light up the dark spaces of our lives. And, and God doesn't just shine a light on our sins so that we can see them and be ashamed, no. He shines his perfect light so that we can see ourselves honestly. And then God extends an invitation to change us. In surrendering ourselves to him, we acknowledge that Jesus paid the punishment that our sins deserve. He's taken the shame and the guilt. That's when we get centered. We acknowledge that we walk in darkness. We need his light to guide our lives. Because at that point, when we turn away from sin and we turn towards Jesus, Jesus takes away that sin and he gives us something unbelievable. He gives us his righteousness. Verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, he not only forgives our sins, he also purifies us, makes us perfect. So those wrinkles that you and I can see, Jesus says, no, no, gone. You're perfect in God's sight. When you and I get centered, us gets better. Because us is a fellowship of righteous people, people who have had their their fundamental natures changed through Christ. Us walks in light and fellowship. Us is not just some other organization or another group or another club that does some good and maybe makes some mistakes. Us is something fundamentally different. Us is the church that God bought with his own blood. So that's got to be our first response, getting centered. The other responses flow out of that. After we get centered on the gospel of Jesus, another response we want to have is we need to get connected. Get connected, especially now as this us is in transition. uh, The key for each of us is going to be getting and staying connected. Uh, Here at Trinity, our primary pathway to getting connected is through our growth group. So if you're in a growth group, let me encourage you to make that group a priority. Uh, Those relationships are going to be so important as we move through this transition. You want to be in the know about things that are going on, get in a growth group. You want to be part of this transition, get connected to a group. If you're not in a group, I'd encourage you to find one. I'd love to help you do that. Uh, If the idea of being in a group scares you, find some other way to get connected. Find some group of friends here that you can connect to regularly. Find some way to strengthen the relationships you have. Because if all you do is come on Sunday morning, you're really not connected. A third thing that you and I need to do to become us is we need to get involved. Part of fellowship, as we said, is participation, it's partnership, and so participate. Get involved. Find some way to serve. You don't have to wait to be asked. If you're waiting around to be asked, 
I'm asking you. You don't have to wait anymore. <laughs> just, just jump in. If you don't know how to get involved, uh, that's okay. Start small. Be a, a greeter out in the lobby. Be an usher. Uh, serve coffee on Sunday mornings. Find some easy on-ramp to serving. If you don't know how to start being a greeter or an usher, ask a greeter. Ask an usher. They'll be happy to help you. Uh, ask the person who poured your coffee. They'll tell you how to get involved, right? Get involved. One final response. We need to get centered. We need to get connected. We need to get involved. And finally, we need to get ust. Ust. Now, on paper, that looks a lot like getting used, but it's totally different. <laughs> totally different. So we talk about fellowship, about what makes us us. And I hope for most of us this is very encouraging. I hope you're hearing this and you're saying, yeah, yeah, that's my trinity. But some of you, you're not there yet. You're on the outside of us. Your, your level of participation or partnership or intimacy is not there. And, and that's okay, especially if you're new. That's great. But, but here's the thing. We know that God is up to something here. We don't have to wonder if God is really at work at Trinity. It's very clear that he is, right? And each of us needs to decide if we're going to be in on that or not. And so get us. Don't be used. Don't use but get us to be all in. Over the next few weeks, we're going to really explore what that means in detail. But for now, let me just challenge you to take one more step than you are taking now. Whether that step is getting connected, whether that step's getting involved, or just, just sorting out once and for all where you stand in your relationship with Jesus. Whatever your step is, take it. Get that much closer to genuine fellowship. Not using, not being used, but being us and I'm going to give you one very practical way to get us membership. A lot of folks are uh, confused about membership here at Trinity. What does it even mean? Why is it important? And uh, I'll just tell you, church membership is important. It's a big deal. It's biblical. It's a valuable step, and maybe now more valuable than ever. Membership at Trinity, it's not like joining a country club or getting a Costco membership. It, it's a commitment, right? One of the things that we say is that if Trinity is the church that God has led you to, then don't just date us marry us, right? It's a commitment. And so, so that's a step you could take. Make that commitment. Be a part of us. Get us. And the pathway to membership here at Trinity is very simple. It's something we call engage. Engage is just a one-time class where you can find out what it's all about to be a member at Trinity, why it even matters, how you're going to get us. So maybe, you know, maybe you've been coming to Trinity so long that you feel like membership is kind of a silly step for you. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to come out and say, I've been here 15 years and I'm not a member. But don't, don't be embarrassed. You know, I'll tell you this, I'll tell you, a while back we had somebody come through Engage who grew up here at Trinity. They'd been involved almost their whole life. And this person went through Engage and they said, man, everybody needs to do that. So, so helpful. So you can take their word for it, okay? You can sign up for Engage on our website. You can mark your connection card. And the next Engage is coming up, February 6th, coming up. As we wrap up, I want to highlight just one more thing about the beginning of this letter. I told you that uh, despite all that this church had been through, all the highs and lows, John has not given up on this church. And Jesus has not given up on this church in Ephesus. And that's true of Trinity here too. God has big plans for us. One of the best parts about this letter is it's focused on the present. You know, John, he doesn't dip into their past, talk about all the great things that happened back then or point out mistakes they made back then. He's focused on the present, and I think that's helpful for us. Not, not ignoring God's past faithfulness, no, no, but realizing 
that God is up to something amazing. So let's partner with him. Let's go be the best us that we can be by God's grace and with his leading. Let's pray. God, I thank you for us. I thank you for these relationships, these people who you have put together that are your vehicle for uh, showing your love and your truth to this valley. I think about the impact we've had and the impact we'll continue to have, and it makes me so humbled and so excited. I pray that you would uh, challenge each of us as we take a good hard look at our own level of fellowship, Lord. Give us what we need to continue in that intimate relationship, in that participation, Lord. And we pray that you would use our efforts to be closer to you to impact the world around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.